Are you like me? Do you find the concept of Otani as a Dodger just a supreme lack of imagination? <laughs> oh yeah, because you you guys are so close to getting them. Oh. Well, it's not just the it's not just the <laughs> Toronto is yeah, so close yeah. to getting him, but it's like any big player if they land on the Dodgers or the Yankees, I'm like, can can we please like get somebody else into this conversation? Can 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 a bitch get a pirate? You know. Like, <laughs> We were talking about this at Wrigley. This guy, this uh, guy on security was like, yeah, I think it's going to be Toronto. I'm like, he's not going to Toronto. <laughs> 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 he's he's going to the Dodgers. Like, why would he go? Why would he have left the L.A. area? Like, he picked up his whole life, moved all the way to America. All he wants yep. to do is win. He's been losing for his whole career. All he wants to do is win. He has like the perfect team that's literally a 45 minute drive away. <laughs> like, why would he go? Would oodles of money to spend? Why would he go anywhere else? This, yeah, I mean, so. <laughs> you make a very good point. I just, you know, I'm, I'm like, can we just get one? Like, seriously, there, there are, there are. Rockies fans out there who have just had nothing for 20 years to cheer for. Like, let's get one of these players on yeah. one of those teams well, just for a minute. Chris Chris Bryant did go to the Rockies and he hasn't been healthy since. So, <laughs> so there's there. That's why they don't do it. Welcome to wherever you are. I swear it's a movie podcast, but we're going to talk baseball for a while longer. My name is Ryan McNeil in Toronto, Canada. You are listening to episode 317 of the Matinee Cast. It's the movie loving podcast of the Matinee.ca, your home for cinematic passion and perspective. It is the holiday season, in case you didn't notice, and I'm here to report that sometimes holiday wishes do come true. You see, there I was recording an Oscar podcast earlier on this year, talking to my dear friend Mariah Gates about how much I would dearly enjoy a close, close acquaintance of hers to come on my show. And she said, you know, he doesn't really do that, but I'll ask him for you. And... Here we are. My Christmas wish has come true. That ask has turned into an appearance. And I am I am so very grateful because, you know, if to, to ask my guest today, this is just not his channel. It's not his avenue, but I'm happy that he's walking down this avenue with me today because, dear people, he's bloody good at all things film related. He's a great critic, a great editor. He is the associate editor at RogerEbert.com. He's a contributor for the New York Times, Screen Daily, and IndieWire. Uh, we're across a wire to Chicago tonight. Robert Daniels is here. How are you, man? Oh, I'm fantastic. I'm. We're getting close to the holiday season. We're getting to the end of the year, and I get to take a rest before Sundance starts back up. <laughs> you, you get like like four glorious weeks, and then you're right back into the fray. Not even. I get like a week and a half, oh, and then shit. the Sundance screeners start coming in, and then it's back at it. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> I'm glad you're getting at least a little bit of a rest. On episode 317, we are going to be discussing May-December. We'll be turning the record over to play the other side, but first, we need to learn more about Robert. This is Know Your Enemy. All right, Robert, this is the hardest part for you because this is the part where you got to do the most amount of talking. And let's start at the beginning. What is one of the first films you can remember seeing in a theater? 
I can vivid, I vividly remember the first film I saw. It's because growing up in Chicago, we did not go to the movies very often. My family and I, really? um, we just didn't. We okay. I, and, and we didn't really have the disposable income. You know, movies are expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, if we needed to see a movie, my dad picked up a VHS tape from a dollar store. You know, right. kind of right. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I remember like waking up one day and my mom and dad were like get dressed it was like just me my brother and my sister and the three of us got dressed and we got on the train and uh we asked them where, where are we going and they're like no it's a surprise okay just just wait yeah and so we're, we get downtown and we're walking around and we're like, Ooh, we're downtown. This rarely happens. Um, <laughs> and we're walking through a crowd and all of a sudden we go into an AMC. Now I don't know about anybody else, but I have never been happy to see an AMC like ever <laughs> in my life. Right. Right. Except for this moment. Cause I was like, wait, are we going to see a movie? And my, we're going up the escalator, and we're like, what movie are we going to see? And my parents are like, you're going to see Spy Kids. <laughs> <laughs> now, let me tell you, Sp- Spy Kids, I mean, now kind of kitschy, kind of like, you know, corny. But at the time, man, like there wasn't a film that I wanted to see more than Spy Kids. <laughs> really? We, we sat there, and, and it was just like... I don't even rem- really even remember the movie. Like mm-hmm. I don't remember f- physically seeing the movie. I remember right. my parents buying the tickets, us going in the theater, and then us coming out of the theater, and I had seen Spy Kids. Right. And that's really all I remember about the experience. And I really didn't think anything of it, because like I said, we weren't a movie-going household. I think the next movie my mom took me to was Shrek. You know, there's, uh, there's, a, there's a gap in between those two movies, yes. <laughs> so, but and so I don't even know how I became got into movies. I, I mean, my dad was always into movies, you know, we we had TCM, yeah, and but like in terms of seeing new releases, we weren't really a new releases family. If it hadn't, if it hadn't played before 1975, we probably didn't watch it, <laughs> right? Right, 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 you know, it's. It's interesting that you mention you weren't a movie-going family because now that you mention it, neither were we. Uh, I could probably count the amount of times I was taken to a cinema before age ten on my fingers. You know, it would like we watched a ton, like you said, like we watched a lot of uh, Rent the VHS, and the whole family watched it together. Which I'm sure now probably seems bananas to to, the, to a younger generation that everybody sits and watches something at the same time. But it was, uh, you know, it was yeah, it was the kind of thing where it wasn't really uh, what my family did for entertainment. We didn't really, like you said, like we didn't really go out very often well like once a month maybe but generally for us being social was either us the kids hanging with our friends or the group of us the family like going and seeing the extended family it was never going to the movies like that yeah if you got on the train you went into an amc that must have seemed like you were like freaking going down the yellow brick road or something yeah, I mean, because the interesting thing about Chicago is that the west side of Chicago, where I grew up, used to have a lot more theaters back in the 40s, 50s, 60s, like movie houses yeah. and stuff like that. And then around the 70s, like most urban 
you know, landscapes started to be gentrification, not even, not even really gentrification, but like a turning over the demographic of the neighborhood, right? So like right. neighborhoods that were once white became Latinx, these places that were once black became white. And so some of these movie houses were turned to porn houses for a while, right? Adult, right. <laughs> adult play, right. places for adults at night. <laughs> and, um, and then some of them lasted until the mid eighties or so when cities wanted to kind of clean up those areas um, and they closed and that was it. And they, some of them were torn down. Some of them were remade into, I don't know, like banks or clothing stores or something like that. Um, and so by the time, I was a kid. Most of those theaters on the West Side did not exist. There might have been like one or two and for to service the entire section of the city. And right. so if you wanted to go see a movie, you couldn't just kind of like walk out of your front door and you had like a neighborhood movie theater. You, it was a trek. It was a travel. You had to earn it. Right. Um, and so that, I think, was the other thing that kind of kept us from being a, a movie going family was the prox we just didn't have proximity to a theater like yeah. we had to literally make a day of it if we wanted to go to a theater all right let's flip the script a little bit what is one of the last films that you watched that's not one of the films we're going to talk about later yeah I, like i said i kind of mentioned that mariah and i are going slowly kind of making our way through scorsese's world cinema project and the, the last one we watched was actually last night it's a uh, in Siang, um directed by lino braca um 1976 film um, set in the Philippines. It's about this young woman who uh, is living with her mom and her mom's boyfriend, who is um, just an all-around terrible guy, you know, predator, um, who is has the hots for her. And she's also in this, like, uh, town. I don't want to say town, but this in this neighborhood that's filled with this, these lascivious men who are also, you know, pining for her. Um, and uh, long and short of it is that she uses her kind of like sexuality to kind of gain agency. Um, and it's a, it's a very, very fascinating film. Um, it's, it's really vibrant, very colorful, um, well acted. Um, the director, Lino Bracca, I think that was, he made many films during his career. I think he made over like 60 um we were watching some of the supplementals on criterion and uh i think they said the he filmed it he shot that film in siaga in 11 days and within 17 days had the film edited and in theaters oh man do you ever hear (laughs) stories like that and feel like we are just absolute slackers yes no all the time i'm just like what am I doing with my life? (laughs) I think about how long it takes me to edit a show, how long it takes me to plan one. Like I was writing this script this morning, you know, that, that director probably would have had this done weeks ago. I am woefully ill versed with the Scorsese world cinema project. How has that been going for you guys? Has there been like any one or two films that's jumped out so far as you've been going through it? It's been a, um, a solid trek, <laughs> you know, um, there've definitely been stuff. I mean, like we both have Edward Yang as a blind spot. And so, uh, we, you know, watched Taipei story, which was, um, amazing. Um, I believe it's his second, second film of his career. I want to say, and the baseball features heavily in it. Um, little league world series is a, is a very clear, uh, character quirk for the lead male character. Um, and then we also we also watched uh, a Med Hondo film that translates as Oh Son. Um, 
that was in- incredibly fantastic. The hit rate on African films is incredibly high because really? it feels like, I mean, particularly at the classic Af- African films, because like it's so hard to kind of make those films that it almost like those films have to be great in order to right. be made. Right, right. <laughs> and you get this stuff that's like that's in the totally different cinematic language than you're used to. Like the mm-hmm. the blocking's different. The editing's different. Even the charisma that the actors are imparting is different. Like, it's just all very, very, very different from what you would expect from uh, anything in Western cinema. Um, and so, like, the, that's really incredible, um, is seeing just how many countries, you know, outside of the usual that we know, you know, like, yeah, you know, yeah. we, we all know France and, and, and Japan and America and stuff like, you know, um, had very have very like robust um cinematic traditions but then you start seeing these other places that where people are just like really picking up the camera and really working on like skeleton crews and like just like somehow making it work and making their art and making great art that is really telling the story of their culture that is telling the story of their countries and whatever political or cultural or social upheaval they're experiencing or whatever you know personal upheaval that they're experiencing mm-hmm. and it, it really has been a very kind of fruitful journey through uh, the world cinema project. I think you've inspired me. I need to start digging into this. I, I mean, I have the channel, so I may as well, may as well make, <laughs> make use of it. Um, thank you. Uh, in Siang, I'll, I'll probably start with that. So um, thanks for that recommendation. And uh, for some of those other ones, Taipei story and Oh son. Um, yeah. And I, I yeah, I, I, I feel ashamed that I haven't dug as deep into the, the global cinema project. It's, you know, it, it's just, it, it, there's so much sometimes and it's not because other bigger things are there. It's just sometimes ha- getting into that rhythm and just kind of, you know, walking down those streets and turning into those doors sometimes just takes a little bit of getting used to. So um, sometimes it just takes a little push. So thanks for the push. Uh, Robert Daniels, what is one of the worst films you have ever seen? Oh, you know, I've been thinking, trying to think about this because, like, worst films. There's, there's a lot of things that could qualify as worst film. Like, yes, there do is. you go with something that is like totally incompetently made, <laughs> or do you go with something that, like, really did you find absolutely like detestable on an emotional and visceral and moral level? <laughs> Antebellum might be the worst film I've ever seen. <laughs> Just because of like what it wants to, so what it so desperately wants to be, it wants to be Twelve Years a Slave. Like it wants to be this important film that tells the history of this black woman who gets sucked into this modern day slavery. Spoilers if you haven't seen the film, right. um, and it's just this pure just degradation porn it's like an absolutely vile and corroded film that like deserves to be shot in the sun and never seen again (laughs) like it's just a horrendous film that i somehow watched twice i remember being 10 minutes in this film and texting people and being like i am watching the worst film of the year (laughs) right now (laughs) And then, then I had, watched, had you end up seeing it again. I saw it again for the money. Uh, <laughs> to be quite honest. 
I got an assignment uh, okay. from Vulture to like do like, hey, explain the ending because there's like a big twist ending. And I was like, I guess. And then two minutes into rewatching, I was texting people like texting people like I'm rewatching this. Everyone's like, why? And I'm like, bills. That's why. <laughs> I mean, listen, principles are only as strong as, as your bank account. I think, you know, okay. So first of all, I'm proud to say I haven't seen it. I think I had half an interest in it. And then, seeing reviews like yours scared me off it so fast um but what i what kills me about a movie like this is i like a lot of the people in it like i love janelle so much uh gabri sidibe i love her stuff kiersey clemens always gets my attention so you know, knowing that these talented people are involved with something so very terrible, uh, it, it just, it kind of hurts my soul. Yeah. I mean, it's one of those movies where you're just like, okay, like who said yes first? Like right. who was the first one to kind of jump on this? And then everyone was like, oh, Kiersey likes it. I mean, maybe I should get in on this. You know, <laughs> like who was, and what was the moment where they all kind of realized Oh, this isn't gonna work. <laughs> like, this is bad. I I wonder, like, when that when that moment happened. I have a feeling I know when it happened. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like uh, whenever I'm I'm watching something bad, or another black critic is watching something bad, we'll text each other and we'll be like, "Hey, have you seen X X film?" Right, right. And we all know, like. Oh no, but what's wrong with it? <laughs> if you're asking, that, that, that's the thing. It's not you gotta see this or we gotta talk about this. It's when it's the question, that's kind of the that's kind of the shorthand for Yeah, yeah. Okay. It, this is this is bad. I need to talk to someone about it. I need to know if you've actually seen it so we can talk about it. Oh man. Yeah, no. I uh you know, I'm I'm thank you for warning me off that. I don't think it was on like any kind of two C list or anything like that, but I may have got Lord like I mean Janelle Monet, she she made like one of my favorite albums this year. I got to see her play in concert, and it was one of the best concerts I've ever seen. Like not just this year, but ever. So I could have been drawn in that direction, been like, "Oh, look, she's in this movie." So thank you for that. Um, I'm sure that, but you're right. I'm sure there are others, and it's it's a hard question because you're right. It's like, is it something that's just incompetent? Is it something that is? Uh, personally offensive. There's all kinds of ways to answer these questions. That's why I like asking them because, you know, we get to know a little bit more about your approach to film and just to life. What is a classic or essential film that you have never seen? You know, what's a big one that people would be like, absolutely shocked. Um, Persona is like a massive one that I have not seen. And every single time I'm just like, and it's like short, it's a short film. <laughs> I know, but I also just kind of like have this thing where like I, I've seen a few Bergman, like I've seen Wild Strawberries and I've seen um, Seven Seal, of course. Um, but, you know, I really like for the rest of the stuff, I have this like tick where like I really want to see a director career chronologically. And so okay. like 
I want to do it and just kind of one, not one big rush, like over three days, but like over a month, just kind sure. of like slowly pick away through it. And so I've just been kind of trying to find the right quote, unquote, the right month, but it yeah, really yeah. is just like, I just need to push, you know, as you said earlier. Um, and I, but that's like, that's like the big one. I think that like I've, and I've seen like so many different stills and images and like clips from it that it feels like I've seen it, but sure. I, I haven't seen it the whole way through. Okay. Uh, I mean, it's <laughs> not to skip ahead a little bit of this podcast, but it's funny that you bring that up because it's going to come up later. Um, but um, where it comes to Bergman, um, it wouldn't be where I start. Like it's, it's kind of, it is very much essential Bergman. It might be the, might be like kind of duking it out with seven, uh, seven seal for like the essential Bergman. Send your emails now. I don't care at me. Um <laughs> But it's not where I would start because it's while it's not exactly the most emblematic of him as a storyteller, he likes telling all kinds of different stories and that's just one. Um, So yeah, you know, you've already seen a bunch now, so you're ready to go into it whenever you want. But if somebody was to start a Bergman retrospective of their own, or they were to program one at a place like the Siskel or here in Toronto at the Lightbox, you know, I would hope that they wouldn't start with Persona because it's not really the gateway drug. Um, but I do look forward to to talking to you when you do get to see it. It will have some kind of mirrors back to the film we're going to talk about today, and um, and it's just it's just so bloody splendid. It's it's kind of a singular film, um, and I realize that saying kind of a singular is an oxymoron, but <laughs> own it. Um, I yeah, like you you saying mirrors yeah. for that. <laughs> yeah, 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 very much. Um, all right. Last but not least, for now, what is a film that you wish you had made? Oh, um, Mr. Smith goes to Washington. <laughs> oh, okay. Why that one? I I I don't know. It's interesting. Like I. Um, I love Jimmy Stewart as most people do. <laughs> um, it really was, I think, the first like classic film that I can remember getting into on my own. Like I remember seeing Mr. Smith, Mr. Smith goes to Washington on TCM and being an, an idiot and going to my dad and be like, "Have you heard of this film?" And he's like. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> everyone has. <laughs> um, but there's a certain kind of like film, this very like sentimental, this very like, I don't even say like patriotic, but like earnestness that's in his filmmaking that I don't think we're remotely used to anymore. Like no one makes a film like Capra anymore. No, no definitely not. Um, how patient he is and how quick he is. Right. Cause there's like, there's a version of that film that could be like three hours, you know, mm-hmm. in a different filmmaker's hands. But instead with him, it's just absolutely tight and economical, the ending and like the build to it when he's like, on the floor and he's arguing his point and like they really are like some of the best close-ups of jimmy stewart that you're gonna find right he really him and jimmy stewart were like just two peas in a pod by that point yeah. and he knew yeah. exactly what buttons to push and what to pull from from jimmy stewart um and jimmy stewart really should have won the uh, the oscar that year i mean 
it, it, it was a worthy, it, I mean, I say that, but, but like he lost to like probably my favorite male performance of all time, Robert Donat and the original goodbye, Mr. Chips. Right. Um, <laughs> it was a great year. It was one of these years where it's like, no matter who, like no matter who wins, some winner is going to lose. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think like uh, Mickey Rooney was nominated that year and so was uh, Clark Gable. Mm-hmm. And I want to say Lawrence Olivier was nominated that year. That would track. I might be I might be misremembering that, but I feel like it was Lawrence Olivier that year as well. I mean, it's just like like a murderer's role, like oh, yeah, who, yeah. you know, that year. Uh, but but I think you know that's quite possibly. I mean, like that's a like Jimmy Stewart's top three performances of all time. Um, mm-hmm. Even better, even than like them reteaming on "It's a Wonderful Life," you know. Um, and so, like, I think the way that he trusts his stars in a way that I don't think we're used to seeing anymore you know like there's so many films that i think do more to undercut their stars and help them (laughs) even if you're like a hardened cynic like i am like i'm not a particularly patriotic person (laughs) right Um, right. but that film it makes me like you you get to the end of that film it's like that and yankee doodle dandy you get to the end of those films you're like you're ready to lead a fourth of july parade like (laughs) 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 i so i just i wish i could like kind of i guess speak to people on a grand scale like capra does in Mm -hmm. in such a simple and refined way that he does it I think what I always come back to when I think about filmmakers like Capra, um, later on Billy Wilder, before the you know around around that era, Ernst Lubitsch, Howard Hawks, these kinds of directors, is um, William Wyler too. They made it look so easy. You know what I'm saying? Like they, what they're what they're doing in story, in performance, in editing, in capture. It's they're they're spinning plates, right? But they're making it look so fluid and so simple. Like what you say, how how there is actually quite a deft level of difficulty to what they are doing in terms of all of those elements of filmmaking, but they're just making it look so fluid. It's like it it's it's like watching Derek Jeter take batting practice. You know, he makes hitting a ball look so easy and hitting it for distance, hitting it for power. It's like, oh, I could do that. And then meanwhile, you get up there. It's like, shit, this is hard. You know, seeing (laughs) those kinds of stories, seeing stuff like Mr. Smith goes to Washington. The other day I was watching uh, His Girl Friday, you know, Mm. what like these kinds of movies where there's just so much going on all at once. And in case anybody ever wants to really understand the level of difficulty, watch some of the other films of the era, because these are just the ones that survived and bubbled up and became the classics. That's for a reason. There's a lot of other films in the era that are just basically stage plays where they turned on the camera and just kind of kept following them around, you know, and the performance isn't like this and the writing isn't like this and the editing isn't like this. They created these things that now just are part of the language, but this was when they built it. Yeah. I mean, you look at Capra's like compositions, um, his framing is just so eloquent when the letters, the bundles of letters arrive that are rebuking Jimmy Stewart's character, Mr. Smith. Yeah. And he picks up these letters and they're crumpled in his hands and he's mm-hmm. looking up and like that close up, And then the cut to the, like the little kids, the pages who are like, they see like just this broken man. Yeah. 
Yeah. It's just, I like, I'm, I'm almost choking up thinking yeah, about yeah, it. Your heart, yeah. No, your heart breaks. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, that was, it, it's, the, there's a, there's a hundred ways you could do that. And then there's the right way. And that's what we saw. The thing is, is like, yeah, only people at the time, only people in history like Capra knew how to do that. And it's, it's what makes them really special. That is a fantastic answer. I am already really excited. We haven't even got into our, our main review. Thank <laughs> you so much. Um, that's a bit about Robert for now. I'm adding you to the roster. This is not a one and done. You're coming back like next year to talk about something else. So, um, <laughs> We uh, we will learn more when Robert inevitably comes back. Um, but for now, we need to look, get into the new slang. The new slang is something that's on Netflix. So if you have uh, that uh, platform available to you, you can uh, watch it right away rather than us talking about a movie that's not going to hit theaters until January. We are going to talk about May, December in the new slang right after this. May December is directed by Todd Haynes. It's written by Alex Machanek and Sammy Birch. It stars Natalie Portman, Julianne Moore, and Charles Melton. May December is a story of a story. It's a film about a couple named Gracie and Joe. That's Moore and Melton. The couple are the source of a scandal since they first became involved when she was 36 and he was 13. Yeah. It's been a long time since then, and they have tried to move on, settling down, getting a house, even having kids who are now ready to graduate high school. The world around them, though, is having a harder time moving on. So much so that there is a movie being made about their lives starring an actor named Elizabeth Barry. That's Portman. Barry wants to get the part just right, so she comes to the small town that Gracie and Joe call home to research. And as she becomes a part of their lives, all of the old wounds find themselves being ripped open. Melodrama has a long history in cinema. It's been the work of legends like Antonioni, Paolo Pressburger, and Douglas Sirk, and even a style embraced by modern storytellers like Stephen Daldry and Todd Haynes himself before this film. It gets a bad rap sometimes. It's spoken of like a dirty word and sometimes even dismissed. And that is where I want to start because you, Mr. Daniels, have really been fascinated and emphatic about this film. So pop quiz hotshot, what is the appeal of melodrama for a modern audience and how does this film embrace it? Yeah. So melodrama is interesting because we don't necessarily um, get many instances of it. I mean, like, you know, does it from time to time, um, but in the modern equivalent, it doesn't come along very often. Whereas like melodrama, of course, back in the, you know, 50s, we used to get a lot of them, right? It used to be a very common film language. It's difficult for it to exist, I think, contemporarily, mostly because we see the world so much through irony, right? And we, the things that should kind of like plague us and should be the complicated components that melodrama should parse within us is now kind of like, easily gets relegated to to memes and gifs the other place we find melodrama is usually in soap operas of course mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right and i think people are kind of used to those kind of like cheesy soap operas or telenovelas right where you get like the overbearing soundtrack the sharp zoom into the face the reaction shot the tears and the the, the wailing um yeah. and like there is some of that in this i'm not gonna lie <laughs> But I think what melodrama has the power to do is melodrama has the power to 
look at the ghosts that we have in the past and kind of let us be able to parse through these big emotions that are buried that um, may be just beneath the surface and be able to look at them out in the open. And by them being out in the open, then they feel over the top. Then they feel almost close to caricature, but really it's like the, you know, the overwhelming kind of uh, the overwhelming flood of emotion, you know, Mm. that can happen in the cinematic experience. And so with this, I always felt like, you know, there's different, of course, flavors of melodrama. I always thought that May, December, um, and it only really happened when the second time I saw it, but it, it like clicked when I saw New York film festival again, that it really is like a Southern Gothic. Oh yeah. Julianne Moore character isn't, Unlike something that would be like in a Tennessee Williams play, you know. <laughs> you, and the same thing with with Natalie Portman, right? Natalie Portman is the outsider who comes to this, you know, this seemingly happy marriage and upsets the the dynamics of this marriage. You know, much like Streetcar Named Desire. By her upsetting the dynamics of this marriage, what is revealed is something that is actually very traumatic for one partner hasn't been spoken of yet and by revealing that trauma there's like i said this overwhelming flood of emotions that allows us to parse the uh, morality of julianne moore's character and to you know parse what um charles mutton's character is going through and through this kind of unraveling of what was a stated order, then we have an opportunity to kind of get an entire clearance or get an entire view of this of this environment. Even though this film doesn't really have like a cultural component, so to speak, like, you know, we don't get like, here's a news story of what people right. think of Gracie now, right? We yeah, have yeah, enough yeah. context clues because we've expanded this world in order to kind of get the morality of what happened then and Mm -hmm. how do people feel about it now and what are people able to bury and what are people able to move on from and what are they not able to move on from? When it comes to melodrama, I think one of the things I enjoy about it is watching some of the hallmarks of melodrama done on purpose. You know, like there's a lot of times where films get melodramatic, but they don't mean to. And it's just kind of because of incompetency. There's been a lot of talk about this film and a moment early on where Gracie says, we don't have enough hot dogs. And it's punctuated by one of the most dramatic, like like basically the musical score goes like, dun, dun, dun. You know, not exactly that, but to that effect. And there are a lot of films out there that do that by accident. When you're watching something like this, it's like they did that on purpose. They know exactly why and how they want to introduce all of these elements from the visual language to the musical language to the performance, you name it. It's all done not with irony, but with intent and also not with incompetence, but because we want to package this modern story into a, uh, an old fashioned style to maybe kind of give it a different lens. And we don't see that that much. Like we were seeing it a lot 20 years ago when they were filled, like, you know, Haynes did um, far from heaven. Uh, you know, there was the hours was around that time. You mentioned Almodovar earlier. Talk to her was around that time. So we were seeing this kind of, strange resurgence of melodrama nowadays it's kind of dialed itself back a bit so it's 
it's it's interesting to go back to it. Um, and and we didn't actually get a chance to to, to get into this before we started. But um, what did you think of the movie overall? Like, I I kind of get the feeling that you did really like it. Oh, I loved it. I loved it. I mean, I first see I first saw it at Cannes, funnily enough, um, oh, wow. at, the, at the premiere. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> it's a movie that really sneaks up on you. You know, I remember the getting out of the screening. It was like late night screening. People got out of 1 a.m. I remember turning to Bilga from Vulture um, and we were like, I was like, do you know a good place to get something to eat around here? Because <laughs> it's late. <laughs> yeah. And we like walked and we like talked about this film and like what our thoughts were about like the score, like what was the deal with that? You know, these performances, like how this film, like you don't know what it's about. And then when you figure out what it's about, you're like, whoa, what's this? And then how seriously we're supposed to take these characters. And I think we would ended up going to like the, like this like sandwich, like burger stand. That was like the only place open in can to get right. food. And by, the time, the, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and by the time we, I was like, all right, I'll see you. And I was walking back to my Airbnb. I was like, I think that's the best film I've seen at Cannes. (laughs) And it just kind of has grown on me and and grown and grown and grown. And I saw it again at New York Film Festival, and I've seen it again since then. I don't think it's my favorite Haynes. Mm -hmm. I mean, my favorite Haynes will always be I'm Not There, Mm because I just, I I love Bob Dylan. And I think... (laughs) no one's ever going to make a better film about a musician than Todd Haynes did when I'm not there. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, I think it's in my top three Todd Haynes. I think it's okay. like, I'm not there like far from heaven and this, you know? Um, and yeah, I just think it's an incredible film that is so well attuned that has pitch perfect performances, particularly by Charles Melton. It was something I didn't entirely know what I was getting into. It's the kind of thing where I feel like wider audiences are gonna are gonna probably reject it because it's not speaking the language that they're used to in general, and certainly not for a story like this. Um, but what it's doing and what it wants to do, like that's the thing. Every single thing it's doing is intentional, and every single thing it's doing is very specifically there for the relationship story at its center. Uh, because that is a very complicated story um, that has evolved in the time. Like, first of all, this is based on a real life event, and it that the conversation around that kind of relationship has really evolved in the time since that relationship happened or like began. Number one, and number two, um, you know, the idea of how we decide to tell these stories. But I feel like that's where we're focusing with all of the Natalie Portman end of the story and her research, which seems a little bit excessive. Um, but you know, it, it's, it's that kind of thing. It's like, how much are you investing of yourself to tell this story? Are you telling the story or are you like putting yourself into the story? Cause I feel like these are two different things. And all of that is by, all of that is by design. They're, they're not bugs, they're features. And it's created something that stands apart um, you know, th- to the way that this kind of film is normally told. Um, Julianne Moore, uh, you know, one of the two leads, her and Portman, I've, I believe, are co-leads in this movie. Julianne Moore um, is a force of nature, and she is acting her ass off in this movie. Even though they have denied this, this question was asked at New York Film Festival about how much the Mary Kate Letourneau of it all, like, influences, and Sammy Bird said it did not 
Sure. And she like joked that like, oh, I was too young for that. I don't remember any. Ironically, she was too young. Um, and uh, everyone in the audience was like, sure, Jan. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we, we all know what this is a reference to. Um, but I do wonder like how many people actually, if you're under the age of like probably 30 you probably have never heard the name mary kate letourneau a friend of mine was asking me if i remembered this story and i was like wait what uh so i i had to do a google uh myself that i you know i was of the age that i should remember but i didn't i just think i think in my head i knew this is the kind of thing that has happened in the world i just didn't know that it was you know one specific one um yeah yeah but she, it, she's it's 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 wild because she's not I don't think she's necessarily mimicking Laterno, but she's also certainly not playing it straight. You know, like she's she's been on the scene for more than 30 years now. Like we know what she acts like when she's just acting like Julianne Moore. Um, this was something real specific, you know, in terms of the accent, the posture, when things aren't going well, how she chooses to break down and even when she needs to assert herself in certain situations uh you know she she asserts herself in a very specific way as well it's interesting when she whenever she takes on an accent because it's not i mean it's not very often there is i think some mimicking of mary Kay laterno but there's also of course like she she knows that she is very clearly playing someone who has been in the public eye in some way you know a number of years and so there is this person of course is always going to have this interplay between what are they showing publicly and then what are they keeping internally and i think the way that she's able to kind of walk the line of letting the internal just enough of the internal flood to the surface that you can't quite tell when you're seeing the real gracie yeah yeah like it's really really incredible this dichotomy that that's going on within the film of like is gracie this like helpless you know woman with the rest of development or is she this like cunning manipulative like spider woman so to speak you know who has ensnared this young man and by the end we still don't really know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The only thing I think we know by the end, because I feel like this is very much in the performance and in Moore's language is this is a woman who can compartmentalize with the best of them. You know, you watch the way she, the way she talks, the way she acts, the way she moves to her community, the way she hands over a literal box of shit. This is a woman who can, parse off what is happening, what has happened and what needs to happen to a degree that is almost frightening. Yeah. I mean, to the point that even like I've watched the film a few times and each time I've wondered like, is the box of shit real? <laughs> <laughs> like, I truly don't. I like have wondered this, like, is it real or cause like the, the timing of it, like it just show happens to show up on the right. doorstep when this actress shows up to do a story about her and it becomes a perfect kind of like segue to be like, Oh my God, look at what we've been going through. <laughs> I hadn't happens. thought of that, but now oh. I'm wondering. <laughs> this happens. Cause you have like the, I, the thing with the cake, you know, yeah. the, you know, like how many people are really ordering the cake? How much contact does Gracie really have with her son? Mm-hmm. How much, like, what is actually 
the world like acting upon Gracie? Like how much is Gracie a passive observer and how much is she an active person who is clearly crafting a narrative? Julianne Moore's performance is so good that it has me questioning whether Gracie actually put a box of shit on her own doorstep. (laughs) Now I'm going to wonder that myself. Thank you for that. Um, On the flip of the co-leads, we have Natalie Portman. She's doing something very different than what Moore is doing. Like they're, they're not two sides of the same coin. She's doing this strange thing where on the one hand, she's trying to learn about this person and not let on that she feels above this person. And at the same time, trying to become this person. And it's this very, very weird balancing act. Again, we've seen Portman for like, since she was a kid. So we know what she acts like. And she as well is doing something really extraordinary in this movie that is not the same as the extraordinary that Julianne Moore is doing. The interesting thing about these three leads is that they all feel like they're in totally different movies. (laughs) (laughs) Totally different movies, (laughs) totally different existences. Like it's just like they're in totally different arcs and they're always bumping up against each other. And that's really the tension of the film. And that of course it is, it is purposeful, but I think that's also kind of what makes people think that it, it like it might be camp because all these people are in different worlds, right? And like need, none of them are acknowledging each other's worlds. Um, they're, they're they're all kind of trying to like navigate these worlds, but and and through themselves rather than through the other person. And like Portman's been in films that I think really kind of like have this sense of like artifice, you know, where it really is like trying to. Uh, dissect public figures you know where you see something like vox lux or you see something like jackie which really and jackie was a film that when it came out was also had this like camp label put on it too funnily enough (laughs) um and so she's kind of like had this interest before but this seems like the furthest that she's taken that fascination and definitely the most kind of like objective that she's kind of looked at this the not just an observer but an observer to the observer yeah um that's very very like fascinating and very removed in a way and i think she probably has like of everyone in the cast i think she has the hardest job because her her role is so removed from everything that's happening because she's also trying at every turn to kind of like mirror what gracie's doing it can feel like that her performance is purely playing off of julianne moore when in fact like it's not it's the thing that's keeping her removed character in the interior in the interior of this story i mean it's 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 incredible it's an incredible dance that she does what got me more the second time the first time it's very easy to get caught up in how much she's trying to mimic gracie because you watch like the scene where gracie's daughter is trying on the graduation dresses you know it's crystal clear that they're both sitting with the same posture and that's and you know this is after we've already gone through Elizabeth, like trying to get her makeup right and making all of her notes. And, you know, we, we're really deep into the research. But what really got me the second time that I watched this was watching when Elizabeth is off on her own, when she goes to that pet store and wants to see the, the stock room where they had where, where this couple had their their affair or watching her when she's having this impromptu actor studio with a high school drama class 
which is bloody fascinating because on the one hand like it, it should just be a complete joke but you watch and she's just basically getting high on her own supply in real time you know and and not only getting high on her own supply but while talking about like intimate scenes to a room full of teenagers you're not just the mimic you know like it's those those moments those mirror moments are really fascinating when we leave elizabeth to her own devices and she just does what she's going to do. That's where her performance really kind of jumps for me. And looking at, she's looking at like the casting videos, you know, the self tape, you know, um, auditions uh, for Joe and her and her producer having this conversation. And, you know, she's like clearly like hitting on him and he's trying to avoid the subject. And then she just like says like, Oh, I think, I think we need hotter boys. Like, I think, <laughs> you know, there's like, just like a, you know, like, I don't, I can't remember the exact words, but she's like, there's just like kind of like a steaminess to Joe that I feel like that these kids just aren't capturing. And you're just like, that's the moment you're like, Oh my God. Yeah. You might be worse than crazy. Yeah. Like in some, in some way, like yeah. you might actually be like truly a detestable person. Yeah. <laughs> Are you doing this for research? Are you doing this to, you know, because you're interested? Are you doing this because some part of you is drawn to, you know, this story because because of reasons? That I think it's it's all in there. And Portman, you know, she yeah, she like you said, she's played some real unconventional parts, shall we say. You know, even like even things like, you know, Black Swan. You know, it's not what you necessarily think of when you think of, you know, the the harvard trained actor we don't think of her playing these kinds of roles and the thing is is that she's not playing them poorly she's playing them to get into this kind of skin and it's not it's not that simple so to see her do it is is actually really fascinating to watch um then in the middle of all this we have merton um as as joe He's, he's, you know, if the other two are, have the stove turned up to nine, he's low simmering down at a four, but his part in all of this is really fascinating. Yeah. Um, and actually to return to Portman briefly, um, uh, do you know what her degree is in, from Harvard? Is it journalism? Psychology. Oh, oh, see, yeah, she's like we're all playing checkers, and she's playing chess. chess. <laughs> but, uh, but no, I I love Charles Mel's performance in, in this. So Mariah Loki, not Loki, High Key, is a massive fan of Riverdale. Oh yeah, um, which I have not really seen. I actually first saw Charles Moden in a little romance film called The Sun Is Also a Star, um, which I thought he was very good in. Um, and, uh, but I, you know, she was like, uh, she, when she found out I was going to Cannes, I was going to see May, December. She was like, you, you have to tell me if Charles Melton's good. That's all I want to know. Gotcha. And I remember coming out and texting her being like, Charles Melton might be the best thing in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> cause I mean, it really, his performance, like kind of like comes out of nowhere. Cause he's, he's hiding so much because the character is hiding so much, you know, so much pain, so much trauma, so much aching, much like Julianne Moore. And he's allowing every so often for these feelings to kind of just kind of bob on the surface every so often, just enough 
to kind of keep you glued in, but not enough to really kind of give you the entirety of his character. He's perfect, protecting his performance very well in this film. Mm-hmm. And then by the time you get to the end, to the graduation, it's just like, he just hits you like, it's just like a ton of bricks just fell on you. And I think the most amazing thing of seeing it a second time was really, because the first time, like I said, it sneaks up on you seeing it a second time and really trying to see like, okay, where, how early does he lay the groundwork for what comes later? And it is so early. It's, it's like literally the first moment you see him on screen, he is already laying the groundwork for the kind of like character reveals he's going to do like in the hotel room. Um, when he's with Natalie Portman, like when he's on the roof with his, um, with the actors playing his son, Mm -hmm. like, those moments where you really just see the facade break. And of course the final confrontation between him and Gracie, which is just incredible. And the way that he carries himself and his posture, he always is like this, like in between this very kind of in terms of like height, in terms of like build very adult, but in terms of like his posture caved in his shoulders slump, um, his hands always kind of fiddling with themselves, um, very much like a kid. Um, yeah. And so he, the way that he's able to balance that and the way he's able to kind of balance the the maturity with the very adolescent fear is, it, it's really, I mean, in, in a f- film filled with amazing performances, give, I mean, helped along by uh, Haynes, who's a fantastic actor's director. I mean, like Melton's is might not only be the most surprising, but it, it might also be the best. The word that comes to mind when I think about his performance is lost. Like he seems like a person who, ha- who is and has become lost uh, because he followed this road that he thought he wanted when he was a boy before he should have ever been choosing which road to follow. And he just kept on it. Right. And he just, it's, it's, it's a lot like, have you ever been convinced that the hotel is, is down this road? And you're like, no, I know the hotel is down here and you just keep going and keep going. And by the time you realize, no, the hotel is not down this road. You are so far on the other end of town that it's like, well, shit, now what? You know, it's like, do I call a car back? Do I just start walking back? Is it still down here? It's that, right? And there's a blink and you'll miss it moment where he goes to see his father. And he talks about how his kids are about to graduate from high school and they're going to go on to college and, and his life can begin. And his father is just like, yeah, and you'll be free to do what you want to do. You know, and his, his like his father is very, very tactfully saying, you will be free to move on if you want to. He's either not receiving it because he's lost or he doesn't want to receive it. He knows exactly what his father is saying and he just doesn't want to hear it. He, he's got all kinds of moments like this where you can just see that he's not flailing, you know, like he's not having a midlife crisis, but he's 
starting to careen like that. And in just a little while, he will have to figure some shit out about himself. And right now he's, he's bottling it all up. You know, like you said, like he's just slumped enough or he's just got that sadness behind his eyes that you can tell that the wrong thing is going to send him there. But because he looks the way he does, you know, he's, he's kind of got that more rugged appearance, that more prototypical that, you know, there's a good looking cat right there. It, it doesn't, show all the time so it's it's a really really intricate performance it's a really tragic story um and yeah one of the like a fascinating part in a movie full of fascinating parts haynes and sammy birch's script is able to kind of look at every component of this fractured family and how joe fits within it and how like it feels like there's like there's never any animosity to joe like no one ever like even when like natalie portman goes to speak with gracie's ex-husband like there doesn't appear to be any like like vitriol or something like yeah. that because i think everyone understands like that he was a kid right yeah. yeah but of course like you know what triggers all this and I, i'm glad that you brought up the um conversation he has with his dad um as of course like he thinks about everything that he is going to be able to do now that his kids have left. But also I think he thinks about all the dangers that his kids will have to confront in the world mm. now that they've left. And so it's definitely, it's not like a midlife crisis. It's not a quarter life crisis. It's just kind of like an internal crisis. Yeah. That he has. yeah. <laughs> the, about like how vulnerable his children are in the world, especially when he thinks about how vulnerable he was when he, uh, when Gracie came into contact with them. And the continual motif is is Joe raising these like these butterflies, mm-hmm. and like there's that scene where um, it's the day of the graduation. This butterflies finally hatch, and he like walks out to let it be free, and then you see his reflection of letting the butterfly go in the sliding screen door. And then just as the butterfly flies off, his daughter walks into the room, the daughter that's graduating. And you get this like great kind of visual language, this great visual metaphor for like that feeling that he can no longer protect them, that they are now just out in the world and they, they have to find their own way. I do love this film's visual language. I do love things like the mirrors and the butterflies. I love watching posture. I love composition in this movie is off the chart. There is one image in this film that the, the, the one I saw it, I actually had to back it up because I'm like, wait, are we doing this? Because there's a scene late in this movie where um, Gracie, one of Gracie's customers has decided not to she's she's making a, a business selling cakes and one of her one of her customers has decided to cancel her order after she's made the cake and joe just to be a sweetheart because that apparently is the way he's wired says let let me have a piece of the cake so he has a piece of the cake he's sitting at the table there's the cake there's the glass of milk next to the cake and she is like off in the frame but her head is kind of cut off in the frame and i'm like there is a very clear mother son thing going on here that is just slamming you over the head with its metaphor that, you know, they're not, they're, they're just, they're giving you the language again, blink and you'll miss it. If you're watching this at home, do not have your phone out because you will miss some of these things. And it's like, okay, we're doing this. Um, 
those kinds of things, like along with the beautiful and tender and sweet and affirming moments, there's a lot of visual language about, you know, some of the more uh, poisonous elements of this story. Haynes is just, you can tell that he watches TCM on loop mm-hmm. <laughs> because I mean, he knows he's like, you know, classical compositions that he can draw from yep. and like his visual language is just so tight and so smart. And the amount of information that he's able to give in a frame is, is really wonderful. And I know maybe that's like part of the reason that people once again thought that this is camp. Because like like you said, it's like he is slamming you over the head with these themes through his visual language. These compositions tell us so much about these characters and so much about their world of thinking about... I want to say it's like one of Joe's teachers or something like that. When they meet at the bar, that's like kind of like... like kind of Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I remember that one. Yeah. Yeah, and like you see like Gracie's son performing and like... (laughs) <laughs> like the cut to Gracie's son is like I laugh at it because it's such a, an egregious cut <laughs> and like when he recognizes Natalie Portman and like oh yeah you're that actress right it's such an egregious cut that kind of like almost in a sense feels predatory in itself yeah and then yeah. of course we have that like later conversation where he like and like, oh, I can give you all the information you want about Gracie if you just make me like what the sound supervisor. Like that. <laughs> that was so specific. I mean, that's, that's the thing. Like again, none of this, like none of this, is by accident. This is not from incompetence. This is all on purpose to, you know, like maybe to make a story about like this that is kind of unsavory a little bit more easily to easy to digest. You know, it's the same reason why. The, the the visual palette of it is kind of so honey tinted. If if you were if you had it on mute, you'd almost think it was a more wholesome story. The way they're like walking along that lagoon, and there's that beautiful tracking shot when when Elizabeth and Joe are walking and talking. That opening mm-hmm. kind of barbecue where you see these like you see American flags on the cups and on the backdrop. You know, it, it's it's this thing where it's like we are telling a story that is kind of gnarly. And if we don't, you know, dress it up this way, it's going to be really hard for some people to digest. I mean, it's a story of like Hollywood, right? It's the proximity to fame, right? Because you have this famous person who enters in and you have a person who's not necessarily famous, but infamous. Yeah. Um, But they almost both have the same currency and the ability to be like, have some kind of proximity to that is alluring in its own. It causes people to take their shot, you know, (laughs) you know, this, you know, Gracie's son has these opportunity where like, I could, I could be the music supervisor. You know what? That story, not uncommon to something that would actually happen in Hollywood. Yeah. Um, yeah. (laughs) Or like the, even the very, like the, the very like movie, that Elizabeth Natalie Portman's character is making, right? Where like you, we see the original film, which is this very kind of like schlocky, um, low budge kind of affair, and then we see the film that she's going to make, and it is it much better. <laughs> is there anything about this film that we haven't touched on that you wanted to bring up that really jumped out at you uh, about um, May December? 
Well, I mean, we I think we have to talk about the score. Ah, <laughs> uh, the score. Honestly, like, I didn't know what to make of it the first time <laughs> I watched it. I was like, he wants the score, but for what? <laughs> <laughs> because it's so, like, overbearing. And I think it's a lot of what people are talking about it as, like, the camp component. Like, there are a lot of scenes that, like, with a different score would play totally differently um as opposed to when like the like the overbearing like piano comes down you know you're like you know you, you can't help but kind of like chuckle a little bit but actually funny enough so the first time i saw the film i think there were like a lot of portions that i like laughed at and then like the second time i saw it there was like less that i laughed at and then the third time that i saw it i was like wait I don't think any of this is funny. <laughs> like, I, maybe there are a couple of things that are, that are funny, but like when you actually like really get used to the way that the score is being employed and you get used to like when the score is coming in, especially on when it's coming on certain beats in terms of the cut, um, you really actually get like a sense of the actual like tragedy that it's starting, that it's trying to communicate you have mentioned more than once um something that that reminded me of something that i I saw this week um where uh people have like you said like people have been calling this film campy and um that remind that reminded me of a piece somebody retweeted this week by angelica jade bastian about why female-led projects are sometimes unfairly called camp and I, i i think you know that that's that's kind of an, a whole. We could probably do a whole show on the thin line between melodrama and camp because I feel like it's a very thin line. And when you go over, you you don't you don't you don't go over by just a bit. You go over by a mile. And when does this movie go over? Does it go over? Um, you know, and and that I think is one of those things that. It's just not in our language because melodrama is just not something we're used to as modern filmgoers. You know, it's it's not the kind of thing that we see very often. It's is this melodrama or is this camp? Yeah, and I um funny enough, I was the person who shared that, reshared that on Twitter. <laughs> the Angelica's piece. Uh Angelica is such a brilliant writer and mm-hmm. even better human. Um I also a um Chicago and a fellow Chicago critic, Angelica. You're both. Um, but uh she uh yeah i mean that piece is such an incredible piece um and like as you said she like talks about like how it's usually films that are about women and not just about women but about the interior lives of women and about their struggles and about their psychology in particular because i think when the uh, when the psychology of women is verbalized or is visualized, it's kind of seen as overbearing. It's seen as extravagant um, Mm -hmm. and ostentatious. And of course, like the way that Angelica kind of like frames it is, you know, these are the things that have, these are the cliches that have always been associated with women. And because of that, whenever a film tries to, do these things or talk about these things that are totally normal emotions for women. Um, they are seen through 
a lens of cliche. And then that immediately becomes camp, especially I think in this film in May, December, the more you see us trying to get to the center of Gracie, who's a very complicated person, extremely complicated. And because the film is mirroring those complications, it can play as being ostentatious, as being showy, as being overbearing. But that's actually just who Gracie is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Again, like what well, I think the 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 if 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 I were to slap a tagline on this movie, I'm like Everything intentional, not bugs. These are features. You know, it, it, it really does seem like you're going down a very strange rabbit hole, but it's a it's a different way to tell this story. We've we see the typical way that this story is told within the film. You know, like they put that made for television movie on the screen at one point. Again, blink and you'll miss it, but you know, they're like, this is the way this is usually told. So to tell it this way, to get into the skin of the protagonist, to get into the skin of the person who's going to portray the protagonist, to get into the skin of the, the, the man at the center of the story is you have to do it this way. Otherwise it's just not going to work. And it, it takes some guts. It took some guts by like everybody bought in. There is nobody in this movie, like the, <laughs> the musicians are not half-assing it. The writer did not half-ass it. None of the actors are half-assing it. Everybody has bought in completely. And yeah, it's, you know, uh, it, like you gotta, you gotta admit it, it's, it stands apart. We could be here talking about this movie till Rapture, but uh, we do have some other movies to talk about. Uh, we end every review here on the matinee cast with a souvenir, something tangible or intangible. If you could take away from this movie and keep, you would. Uh, Robert Daniels, what would be your souvenir from Todd Haynes, May, December? I want one of Gracie's cakes. I want to know if that, if it's actually good. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know? or, was, or was Joe just lying? Is everyone just lying to Gracie? I feel like everyone's just lying to Gracie. I feel like the cakes are bad. That's right. That's my guess. <laughs> I mean, you've already sold me on was there shit in the box, so <laughs> I, I, I do believe you that, that, that there's that. Um, I, I feel like I want to go to that barbecue. You know, uh, it's it's we're, we're in December now. I haven't been able to barbecue for months, so seeing a grill just like covered with hot hamburgers and hot dogs like that was just way too many for that many people. But uh, sure, why not? Um, that, I, I want to go to that barbecue and drink out of some American flag glasses and sit out on that lakeside that that looked like a a nice little time before everybody got up in each other's business we rate here on a scale of one to four stars robert daniels what do you give uh may december on a scale of one to four full four stars nice nice i'm um i'm at a solid three i'm 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 the you know like the more i come back to it the more i appreciate it i do wager that in like one or two more viewings, I will see even more. Um, but I, it, like, this is a really, really good film. It is definitely one of the best films I saw this year. Um, I'm just the, the 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 lack of a fourth star is on me, not on the film. Um, hey, maybe you think this movie is hot garbage and you don't know why we talked about it for this long. Maybe you love this film and you don't think we're being kind enough to it. Let me know what you think. Ryan at the matinee.ca Twitter. I am matinee underscore ca. Um, what do you think of May December? We are going to take a very quick break here and uh, flip the record over. We'll be right back right after this with the other side. We're all on a journey down the hall of 
We're back. He's Robert Daniels. I'm Ryan McNeil. We've been talking on MatineeCast 317 about May-December. This is the other side, the point in the podcast where we uh, suggest some further viewing, uh, some possible double features that you could uh, put together with this new uh, melodrama classic. Um, why don't you get us started? We've actually talked about a few films already, so maybe they're going to be some of the ones you mentioned. But um, what did you? where did your thoughts go to as to where somebody could go after May-December? One is the, the one is obvious. One is the go between, which is the Joseph Losey film that is the um, inspiration for the score in May December. It's actually note for note the same score. Two films this year actually took inspiration from the go between. It was May December and it was Saltburn, um, and it's a film about a young boy who arrives at a posh English country estate. Um, where the um, the lady of the house um, ha- is having an affair with one of the um, tradesmen. He is the um, one of the groundskeepers at this um, country house, um, and this it kind of goes back and forth, back and forth because this we see the adult version of this kid who's meeting with the older version of this. Um, this lady and talking about the summer that he experienced at this country home and really like his at this country home, seeing these two people and their kind of like sexual desire for each other really is his kid's first introduction into sensuality and how that very much changed them. And so when you, you know, hear that plot line, you can definitely see how Todd Haynes was, you know, interested in this score. And actually, if you see the way that he employs the score, particularly with the cuts and particularly with those slow zooms, those slow push-ins, it's the exact same way that Joseph Losey okay. does it in the go-between. Um, I, I think never seen that so uh, and it's kind of funny because i think if there was one thing that we could do to to, you know to possibly sell somebody on a movie besides saying it inspired may december it would be to say it also inspired saltbird because i know people are having nothing but love for that movie (laughs) yeah no it did and it's 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 very fascinating i actually recently wrote a piece about saltburn and like it as a passing narrative and looked at the go-between is kind of like an, an example of that too and how she pulls those elements into those films not remotely i think as well as todd haynes mostly because i think she's kind of like uh i think they're less homages and most more cribbing you know and it, it kind of feels that way like okay. there's a lot of in Saltburn, and there are a lot of elements that don't quite fit together mostly because it feels like she's just kind of throwing her favorites like influences together in a vat and mixing them together. Yeah. yeah. Um, whereas like with Todd Haynes, like you can very much tell like he specifically wanted that score. And I think once you see the go between, you see how like, I think how tragic that film is. And you see how that score is being used in that film. And you go back and you watch May, December. I think you really get the tragedy and that he's trying to impart with that. And I think that's part of the reason that, that film hasn't made December hasn't had like the emotional impact as it should have with most people is the fact that like, not only are people not used to seeing melodrama, they probably haven't seen the goat between. Um, I mean, first of all, thank you for this. Cause I, I hadn't even heard of it. And now I am totally going to track it down real bloody quick. Um, Cause it looks really interesting. And it's one of those, you know, it's probably, it's one of those movies that was, 
part of the language for a long time that as we've gone on is kind of been tamped down a little bit. Like we were talking about this on the last show when we were talking about the holdovers and the seventies films that inspired the holdovers and how at one point they were just shorthands for a lot of things. And now it's like, you know, you mentioned something like being there to somebody who's under the age of 30 and they probably have no idea what you're talking about. Um, well, the first movie that I thought about um, coming away from uh, May, December, uh, you know, it's, it's not an, an obvious pull because it's not a melodrama. It's kind of a film all unto its own. We did mention it earlier on in the introduction. I thought about persona. Um, it's, it's language is drastically different. It's language is, sometimes very cold, often very cerebral. This afternoon, I went to the Lightbox and I watched um, 2001 A Space Odyssey. And that kind of movie encourages you to let your brain drift. You know, you don't have to stay in lockstep with the narrative because there's going to be times where the narrative is going to take a backseat to style and to i you know concept um persona is very much like that persona the actual story is very simple and there's going to be time there's going to be whole sequences where it's like you know what we're gonna pull to the side of the road right now you just let your brain go where you want to go but again it's the story that has an actor at its center it's a story where there's two women playing off each other um but it the the visual language of it is so incredible and watching the two women uh how they interact with each other um is is, i'm first of all just way overdue for a rewatch i'm thinking as i as i talk about it and it's it actually probably hasn't even been that long but for me it's been a long time it's two very very different ways to have this kind of relationship i don't feel like this kind of story only has one way to tell it and that's what i like that we're starting to see with a lot of these films you know, kind of becoming a little bit more mainstream, bubbling up to the surface much more as we're starting to say, hey, this sort of relationship, this sort of interplay between two women, um, there's a lot of ways to tell this. And whether it is high art, whether it is, you know, slapdash comedy, whether it is, you know, a a little kind of low boil indie or a melodrama like this movie, um, they're all very, very interesting. So my, my, choice and maybe you can consider this encouragement is persona what's one of the other movies you think that people could go on to after um may december this is a random one i kind of hadn't thought about until earlier today but uh peter strickland's the duke of burgundy oh wow (laughs) yes please okay tell people about this opus because i feel like not enough people know yeah, I mean, the Duke of Burgundy, I think, of course, has, like, butterfly collecting in it. So that's that's just kind of like a surface kind of thing. But there's also this, like, this, pow- this sexual power dynamic between this older and younger lover that comes to a head in this film. And uh, much like Todd Haynes, Peter Strickland loves, like, heightened emotion. He, like loves i mean he his stuff almost kind of can like like flux gourmet is like very near to being like that might be planned camp that actually <laughs> might be him trying to do camp <laughs> and doing it very very well and the duke of burgundy has those kind of same elements to it has those same kind of like uh those those same kind of explications of like deep seated resentment but these also these uh these deep-seated like repressions that are being like revealed um through this like 
imbalanced sexual relationship that's happening. It just kept coming back to me, even though like the visual language isn't you know particularly the same. But but also actually, you know, both of these films kind of had that like that honeyed tint to them as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, he's Strickland definitely is like kind of like pulling for more of like a vintage sheen on it, but it still has that kind of like honey tinted lather on it um, that I think kind of like makes these interesting, two interesting films to kind of pair together. For how dirty that film is, it's not really that dirty. Like one of the, like, you know, when we get down the road with my guests, like one of the questions that comes up in Know Your Enemy is what is one of the dirtiest films you've ever seen? And again, I always leave that open to interpretation because it could be anything, anything, everything hits people differently as quote unquote dirty. But for how charged that film is, it's really not all that explicit. Like you see next to nothing in that movie. You know, like it is, it is one of the most chaste depictions of a dominant submissive relationship that you could possibly put onto film. And yet, and yet, time and again, it finds ways to really like mess with your head and um, just in make no apologies about it. Like that film, first of all, like I points because I haven't thought about that film in in a hot minute. Um, <laughs> but it, yeah, that movie it it's it's not that it's handsome; it's that it's so handsome. Like everything in that movie has that very vintage um look to it like like that is not a film where i believe that anything was green screened or anything with visual effects in like every single thing in that movie is chosen is worn is on the premises because it all has weight and it all has like weathered you know look to it including you know, the actual people themselves. Like they are very interesting actors that are at the center of that movie. Thank you for reminding me of that movie. Cause I have not seen that in a long time. <laughs> By the way, the, the dirtiest movie I've seen, uh, is a rage in Harlem. Um, and, now I'll have to, and now I'll have to look up why and see you're cheating. Like that, that's, that's a question that happens when you're on the fifth time you're skipping ahead. <laughs> uh, but I, I do like that. You're you know, that you're already uh, thinking about the next time you're going to be here. It is my turn again. I don't know how I'm going to follow that. But uh, <laughs> since we're talking about Todd Haynes, I did want to talk about my favorite Todd Haynes movie. Um, interested that you mentioned I'm not there because I, 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 I always thought that movie was like, one narrative too long. You know, I I love almost all of them, but it's like, I kind of feel like I could do without Richard Gere. Um, But my, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Please, please don't tell Mariah that I'm really sorry. Um, But where it comes to Todd Haynes, I am one of those who keeps coming back to Carol, which, um, it's, it's actually, it's right around now that I usually watch Carol because her little meeting and her date book is on December 21st. So every year on December 21st, I watch Carol. Um, another movie that is melodramatic, but in the scope of his melodramas, a little bit less melodramatic. Another movie of his that is really visually handsome. Um, and, and that's saying something because a lot of his movies are, ex- including uh, I'm Not Here, are extremely visually handsome. Um, 
another movie, you know, this movie is a, a queer story where the, where the women do have an affair, but another movie that starts out just as a conversation between two women. Um, and I love so much about it. I love the, the acting of Blanchett. I love the acting of Rooney Mara. I, you know, I'm certainly not hurt by the fact that she's a photographer. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a movie I think is underrated. Yeah. I mean, I loved Carol. Funny enough, we, we actually missed the opportunity cause they just played it at the Mesa box here in Chicago. I think on like 35 millimeter or something. Ooh. And we were just like, both our schedules were too busy to make it. I don't, I don't think any of us had seen Carol on the big screen. I'm not sure Mariah has seen Carol on the big screen. I, oh, I, I'm a big fan of the, of, of Carol. I, I feel like more people should see it. And it's my, you know, as I said, every year, December 21st, I watch Carol. So if you see it on my letterbox on December 21st, don't say I didn't warn you. All right. Take us home, man. You got one more movie to go along with me, December. What do you got? All right. This is a random one and probably has nothing to do with this film, <laughs> but I actually want people to see an example of actual camp. Oh gosh mixed with southern gothic okay <laughs> melodrama and that is lee daniels the paper boy <laughs> <laughs> all right <laughs> show your work <laughs> like truly no, go see that movie see what actual camp is and then come back to this movie and tell me this movie is camp it's not camp that is camp what lee daniels made <laughs> because i mean it is it's like the the explicit sex the the overwrought performances the exact like efron and matthew mcconaughey cast as the least believable brothers in film history there's like no kind of like in terms of like tone like mm-hmm. connection i mean everything about this is like over the top there's even like queerness in it um with regards to um with one of the characters i don't want to spoil which one um that is also just kind of like falls into tropes and stuff like that but i will say though like this is one of the few southern gothic melodramas that has been made in the last 20 years other than todd haynes's may december and i think when you see the two you'll see that they are very much working on the same mechanics they are both um of course set in the south but they are kind of about because usually in a a southern gothic you know something is falling apart usually something that is you know like it could be like a house you know uh but in some ways it's also a family right it's anything Mm -hmm. that is kind of had a firm foundation that is now crumbling. And we see the same thing in May, December. Uh, Southern Gothic films are also about the ghosts of the past. Um, and sometimes these ghosts can be real apparitions, you know, actual like phenomena, or they can be memories and they can be like the cultural heirlooms and, and you know, Paperboy in particular, it's, uh, it's a murder that's happened. Um, in this film, it is um, Grace's own quote unquote exploits that are coming back to the surface. And so I think these films are just kind of interesting just to kind of put side by side, even though I think they are totally different in their temperament, um, just to kind of see what like another version of, of a modern quote unquote modern. I mean, it came out, Paperboy came out a little over a decade ago now, yeah, um, yeah. actually, uh, but a modern Southern Gothic melodrama. What does that look like? And what are the mechanics of it? These films have their merits, you know, I I think is what we're trying to say is 
so a lot of these movies they come with deep flaw. Uh, you know, we're we're not trying to suggest that May December has flaw. Like May December, uh, it's 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 odd. You know, it's it's not going to be what you expect when you're going in. But it, I don't think that it's a flawed film. But some of these other films that we're talking about, um, they they do come with with flaw. But that's not necessarily, you know, they're not trash they're not you know kind of when we went back to the beginning of our conversation when i talked about one of the worst movies you've ever seen it's you know just because it doesn't work on every level doesn't mean it's it's a travesty and should just be boxed away and i think that's that's what's interesting about some of these movies is come back to them and look at them through this lens look at them through this prism look at it for this reason and you may find that it's worthwhile for other reasons beyond just can it tell me a good story yeah, plot overrated. <laughs> <laughs> well done. That is episode 317 of the Matinee Cast, and I'm truly thankful that Robert was able to come and join me. This is also, of course, the last episode before the holidays. So um, please, everybody, have a happy holiday season, whatever you're celebrating, whoever you're hanging out with, whoever you're avoiding. Just be safe, be happy. It's been a long year. It's been a long few years. Just try to close it out whatever way suits you best with my best wishes. Come on back on Sunday, December 31st for episode 318. It's the year-end episode. We will be counting down our top five films of the year. I've got a great uh, group of guests that are going to join me. Uh, So while you're getting ready to go out, take a listen um robert of course as i mentioned off the top of the show is on RogerEbert.com. he's uh several other places um first of all where can people follow you if they want to follow your work and what do you got coming up next week that people could look forward to i guess you can still follow me on the artist formerly known as twitter x um <laughs> yeah. at 812 film reviews um which is not the area code that i'm from uh everyone always asks that it's actually a reference to eight and a half you just can't put the back. You can't put a slash in a URL. Got it. Got it. All right. It's a bad name, but anyway, no, no. Eight one two phone reviews. <laughs> it's it's your branding and, now. You got to own it. And then, um, and you can find me at the same handle on Letterbox as well. Um, I will have reviews dropping in the next two to three weeks um, for Steve McQueen's Occupied City. Uh, and for um, the Sarsgaard uh, Chastain film Memory, those will be on rogerieber.com. And then it's over at the New York Times, I'll have a piece about the 20th anniversary, um, at least the 20th, right? Oh, 25th, 25th anniversary, I think, of Down in the Delta, um, a Maya Angelou's only, the only film Maya Angelou directed. Um, and then I have a big piece in the Times that'll be in the Times dropping on about the color purple that'll be dropping in the first week of January. So oh, fantastic. That. Lots of places to find um, to find Robert, and please do. His writing is incredible. Um, I, I do not know why he's wasting his time with me tonight. Um, my site <laughs> is thematinee.ca for more audio content. You can find back episodes there. You can find them as well on Spotify, Apple, Google, all the platforms. They give you handy ways to subscribe for free and get alerts when new episodes drop. I'm also on pretty much all the other platforms you can think of, and if you're using something for podcasting that uh, I'm not on, let me know. I'll put my show there. It's super easy. Feedback on May, December can be left in the comment section of the site. You can email Ryan at matinee.ca. On Twitter, I am matinee underscore CA. And there's always still Facebook, facebook.com slash dark matinee. Any final thoughts, Mr. Daniels? 
Well, thank you for having me on. Tonight was not a waste of time. Anytime I could talk about a rage in Harlem and <laughs> Forrest Whitaker's sex scene, it's not a wasted night. <laughs> I, I am more than happy to oblige, and I am looking forward to getting you back now that I've now that I've twisted your arm into doing it once. So you're on the roster. You know, you're gonna you're gonna get the tap for the at bat at least once a year. Thank you so much for doing this. For Robert, I'm Ryan. Happy holidays. We'll see you at the matinee. Thank you.